Maya Devi was 25 years old when she was on the way to her village Sako in Himachal Pradesh. She was accompanied by Raj Kumari and was walking on the left side of the road. A bus with the number plate HPK1465 was returning from Dharamshala and ran over Devi and injured Kumari. They were rushed to the hospital but Devi did not survive. Devi worked on the farm, tended to cows and buffaloes and worked as a domestic worker at several households. She was also a mother to a 3-year-old and was 7 months pregnant. This was a tremendous loss. The family filed a legal case in 1986 that Devi played a vital role in their household and that they must be remunerated for their loss by the accused. What do you think the courts ruled? The learned counsel for the respondents have contended that if the deceased was working as a maid servant in different houses, she was left with no sufficient time to care for the family and for carrying on her household work. These were the words of Justice R Khurana of the Himachal Pradesh High Court 10 years later. We do not find force in the contention of the learned counsel for the respondents. It cannot be presumed that working ladies would neglect their families and would not render gratuitous services to the members of their families in bringing up children and looking after their husbands in their day-to-day needs. So the court assigned a value to recognize the family's quote loss of services including love and affection and loss of income of the deceased end quote we'll be discussing similar rulings about women's unpaid domestic work in today's episode welcome to research radio a podcast by economic and political weekly i'm your host abhishek women spend more than 3 times as much time performing unpaid domestic work than men in india based on 2019 nsso data This means less time to pursue paid work, less time to learn new skills, less time to take rest and more. What is the importance of this type of labor that feminists have called reproductive labor? So essentially reproductive labor is a range of paid and unpaid domestic and care work that women perform which in effect makes paid work possible. That's Dr. Prabha Kotishwaran, professor of law and social justice at King's College London. So if we look at you know Silvia Federici is a famous Italian feminist she says this in a very simple fashion she talks about how housework is much more than just house cleaning it is servicing the wage earners physically emotionally sexually getting them ready for work day after day it is taking care of our children the future workers assisting them from birth through their school years ensuring that they too perform in what's expected of them under capitalism So she says this very powerfully she notes that this means that behind every factory behind every school behind every office or mine there is a hidden work of millions of women who have consumed their life their labor producing the labor power that workers in those factories schools offices or mines so this essentially is a very simple kind of understanding of what reproductive labor is one could add to it certain aspects and here i draw on katherine hoskins and shireen rai's definition of social reproduction where they talk about biological reproduction the very act of bearing and giving birth to a child any voluntary work in the community and the reproduction of culture and ideology that women often perform and according to you know the supreme court opined in one of its judgments that the value of the household labor that indian women perform amounted to 612.8 billion dollars a year 
Right. I think it stands out that this type of labor is what makes paid labor possible. This definition will surely help our conversation, uh, which is based on your EPW article. In this article, you've looked at uh, hundreds of legal cases since the 1960s, where you're focusing on how courts have attempted to value unpaid care work when women have died or become disabled as a result of motor accidents. Could we discuss your findings? We have to understand that the context for the development of this case law is what we lawyers call tort law, which is basically it's an area of private law where individual litigants, you know, or corporations contest claims against each other. And in this case, uh, these were accidents under the Motor Vehicles Act, where dependents of the women came to the courts asking for compensation for the unpaid work that the women had performed. Now, Unlike in other common law jurisdictions, in India, tort law, especially in the context of the Motor Vehicles Act, has always been an area where judges were very focused on a social justice perspective. They were very interested in redistribution from very early on. So you will find that in the 1970s, Justice Krishna had actually been very emphatic that we had to depart from English common law principles where liability was based on proving fault of the person who had caused the accident. Instead, he said, look, we are in a country where there are millions of illiterate people who are poor and uh, they are sucked into the litigation system where they are unable to prove fault. So in effect, we should have a rule where there is no fault liability. So once the accident occurs, whether the fault is proved or not, there should be compensation. And this idea of social justice resonates in every decade. Uh, So we find even in the case of Kirti in 2021, where the Chief Justice of India, the current Chief Justice, uh, Justice N.V. Ramana, speaks about the social justice commitment of tort law. So this we need to understand. The second uh, thing to recognize is that Indian courts have been incredibly innovative in trying to recognize the unpaid work of women. Now, if you look at common law jurisdictions around the world, often when a homemaker dies, courts would award compensation for the loss of her services to her husband under the category of loss of consortium. And this literally was loss of sexual services, loss of household services, loss of companionship. And this used to be a very discrete fixed amount which was awarded to the husband. And this was considered to be, you know, her labor of love for which there would be some compensation, but not a lot. Now, the creativity of Indian courts was to say, well, let us uh, think about this slightly differently. And they did draw on English common law, but they imported it into Indian law in a very interesting fashion. They said, well, let's not look at this purely as, you know, loss of consortium or loss of love and affection. Let's look at it through the category of economic damages. Let us think of it in terms of loss of gratuitous services, as they called it. And then they interpreted it broadly. They didn't just talk about what would it take to hire uh, a replacement worker to perform the same services. Instead, they said, well, here is a woman who's also a mother and she's you know, bestowing this love and affection on her family, which is essentially unquantifiable. So the least we can do is recognize it in this broad sense and then treat it like an occupation. You know, let us fix a monthly amount for this. And not only that, let us multiply it over the reproductive lifespan of the woman. In effect, they were treating this unpaid work as an occupation on par with, you know, say the office work that a man would perform. And if he had been killed, you'd say, well, how much does he earn per month? And let's multiply it for the rest of his life. Let's deduct some expenses and so on and so forth. So this was the creativity of the Indian courts. Now, in the process of making this very creative argument, of course, judges, like other members of society, 
drew on what was most intuitive to them, which is the role of the mother in Indian culture. So you find within the judgments an elaboration of social norms and also a sense that, you know, Indian mothers should be on par with English mothers. If English law can recognize the love and affection of, you know, an English woman, why shouldn't we do it? So there is an elaboration of social norms, which unfortunately reinforces gender stereotypes. And this does some very powerful ideological work in the cases. And this really resonates with the idea that Anita and Rajni Parliwala have articulated of gendered familialism, where care is thought of as a familial responsibility, as a female responsibility. Now, of course, as you asked, you know, the direct implication of this is that if you did not perform this kind of work of a mother, then you would not be compensated. And there are some very good examples, actually, in the case law. So there's a presumption that if the wife was newly married and if she was killed, then, and she did not have children, then there's an assumption that the husband can remarry and therefore his needs would be met by another woman. So in effect, you don't have to compensate him to the same extent if he had had a, a child through that woman. So this is very interesting. Similarly, you know, in one case, there was a single woman who was killed and her parents got compensation, but only for a period of five years on the assumption that she would eventually anyway get married. So you find some very pernicious kind of stereotypes about, you know, Indian families that get perpetuated. And in yet another case, actually, there was a newly married housewife who was killed along with her husband. And here, in fact, the court had initially awarded compensation to the parents of the woman, but her in-laws then contested this. And the court actually awarded then compensation and appeal to the in-laws. Uh, claiming that actually it's almost as though the reproductive labor of the woman was somehow committed to the marital household rather than the natal household. So there's a very interesting way in which in trying to highlight the value of unpaid work of women, there are there are many, many assumptions uh, that are replicated in the judgments that are deeply problematic. Definitely. And such judgments put several groups of women at a severe disadvantage uh, what were some of the other assumptions that courts have made uh, while setting a value for their uh, unpaid domestic work? So one assumption relates to the intensity of reproductive labor. So courts decided that the most onerous form of unpaid work would be taking care of a child. So uh, if one had a child, then there would automatically be more work. If the child was young, there would be more work. If the child was an adult, there would be less work. In effect, the adult child might in fact be taking care of the mother. The courts also looked at the number of children that a woman had. They also asked, is the child, you know, specially abled or not? Because that would again mean a higher intensity of reproductive labor. Courts also made assumptions about the length of, you know, reproductive labor as an occupation, if you want to think of it that way. So on the one hand, they said there is no retirement age for a woman. At the same time, they were very closely thinking about uh, biological reproduction. So they were, you know, tying this occupational length of this occupation to biological reproduction. So in many cases, they said, well, you know, between 34 and 59, women have to perform a lot more reproductive labor, whereas after 55 and after 60, there's a great drop in the amount of reproductive labor that they perform. Uh, although we know that this is not true, we know that actually grandparents perform an incredible amount of unpaid labor, but there's an assumption here that once your children are grown up, there's less reproductive labor. Part of the problem with uh, the case law is that in trying to recognize unpaid care work, there's a hierarchy set up between uh, you know, domestic work, sort of manual work and care work. 
And here, immediately then, if you're thinking about care work of a woman, you automatically link it to the educational qualifications of the woman. And this becomes a proxy for class status, because who else would be, you know, educated? Uh, it would be a middle class woman who performs care work within the home and who has been educated. So once you look at tie opportunity cost to educational status, you're already valuing the work of, you know, middle class women more than that of uh, working class women. So what this obviously does then is to exclude a whole set of women or pay them less rather, or compensate them less. So women who are poorer, who are earning less, you know, automatically because their husband's income is less, they get paid less. If they're not educated, then they get paid less. If you're an older woman, you get paid less. If you're single, you get paid less. If you don't have children, you get paid less. So you find that there are serious limitations uh, to this approach uh, of the courts. Yes, I'm, I'm glad we're discussing these limitations. And well, we've talked about the factors courts considered while setting uh, the actual value in rupees of women's unpaid uh, domestic work. But could we look at the specific methods that they have used? One was the very simple one, which is to simply say, how much would this cost to replace? That was sort of the initial trend in the 60s where courts were using the replacement value. Then they started thinking about the opportunity cost of this labor. What would the woman have done otherwise if she had not been doing unpaid work at home or was a homemaker? So here they looked at the minimum wages that she might have gotten had she worked outside. And here again, there are some problematic assumptions. Sometimes there's an assumption that, you know, housework is simply unskilled work. And sometimes there's an assumption that it's actually skilled work. So they would look to different tables for minimum wages. They would also then think about the educational status of the woman when they were thinking about opportunity costs. They would also think about the age of the woman to see, you know, uh, what would have been the opportunity cost of her labor. There were some other parameters that courts also used. So, for example, the statute itself had an inbuilt bias here. So under the Motor Vehicles Act in Schedule 2, it said very clearly that if you have a person who doesn't earn an income outside the home, we could fix a notional income. And... Um, in the case of, you know, a spouse, it could be one third the amount that her spouse would have earned. So it's very clear that discrimination is inbuilt here. So a homemaker who does not have a job, her notional income is already a third of what her spouse makes. So that's the only value of her unpaid work, although it actually is the reason why the spouse is able to work outside the home. The courts also drew on case law where, you know, courts had decided that women should get paid 3,000 rupees per month. So anyway, there were these various ways of calculating the amount. And you've made this observation and we've spoken about this too, that, you know, during these hearings, judges and advocates sometimes rely on stereotypes where women are seen as biologically or essentially caregivers and mothers. Some have argued that this mode of reasoning can be used towards feminist ends, um, maybe counterintuitively, and it's called a strategic essentialism. Could we discuss if this is an effective strategy and, and what the limitations are? It's an excellent question. So actually, I have to say that in the case um, of the judges, this was not an explicit strategy that they adopted. It's something that had to be drawn out. So there's a very beautiful interview that Rajeshwari Sundarajan has done of Justice Prabhashri Devan, who delivered a 2009 case where she actually, for the first time, you know, spoke about women's unpaid work in a, through a feminist lens. So it's a very powerful judgment, which was subsequently confirmed by the Supreme Court in 2010 in the case of Arun Kumar Agarwal. And 
Here, actually, uh, Professor Sundarajan asked Justice Shridev, and she says, well, you know, why is it that you focused on the care work of the mother? You know, don't you think this perpetuates stereotypes? And it's quite interesting how Justice Shridev tells us how difficult it was for her to make this argument, because she says that the lower court in that case was willing to compensate the minor for the father's death, but not for the mother's death. And, you know, the the lawyers for the child also did not actually bring up the question of the work of the woman. Um, so Justice Shridevan explains how worried she was that if she actually, this argument that she was making for recognizing the unpaid work of women would actually be overturned, potentially, if it were to come up for appeal, on appeal. So we have to understand the context in which she was trying to, you know, make visible the unpaid work of women. But I think there she says that, you know, her goal was to simply put unpaid work on the table, and which she did very, very successfully. And in the long run, clearly it had it had a very positive impact because once it was confirmed by the Supreme Court, you see a huge rise in cases where uh, not only the unpaid work of deceased homemakers is recognized, but also disabled women who are, who are actually alive. It has huge ramifications for men, for example, while working in the informal economy. So I think in this case, this calculated strategy of strategic essentialism actually, I think, uh, had positive uh, impact. But of course, you do find that there is a split within the case laws. So you find uh, you know, judges who very much glorify the stereotypes of women. Not only that, you know, they not only glorify uh, maternal altruism, they also talk about women being nation builders and how crucial they are. So this really is very, very powerful. But you also find a whole set of judgments where courts and judges, including male judges, actually think about recognition of unpaid work in a very transformative sense. They talk about marriage being you know, an egalitarian institution where you know, the work of women is as valuable as the work of men outside the household. They talk about women who are going out and working and earning more than their husbands. So you find a different image also of Indian marriage that comes through uh, uh, the decisions. And I think so strategic essentialism clearly can have some positive impacts, but it can also have some more ambivalent kind of consequences, as is evident in the case law. Right. And and as part of your research, you also noticed that in many cases, homemakers were engaged in paid work, uh, primarily in the informal economy. So how did the courts uh, recognize this type of work? Absolutely. I think the courts have done a remarkable job, actually, in recognizing the reality of India, which is that, you know, more than 90% of the working population is in the informal economy. And here I just want to say a little bit about homemakers. I think we should stay away from this kind of stereotype that, in fact, we have women who go out to work and then women who stay at home. You know, so this, this idea of the ideal housewife is actually not borne out in reality. So, in fact, I found throughout the case law, you know, it's also reflective of social realities. We find that a lot of women were working within the home, but also were doing work outside the home. So they were either a sweeper, they'd be a telephone booth operator, they would buy and sell vegetables, uh, they were working with an NGO. So they did paid work outside of the home. We also found women performing reproductive labor for the market. So they would be domestic worker, school teacher, beautician, and so on. Then we also found that there were women who were doing paid work within the home. So a lot of women were doing embroidery. They were doing tailoring. Uh, they would stitch for a garment factory. So this is just you know outsourcing work from the formal sector into the informal sector within the home. They would do tutoring. They would do bookkeeping for the family business. So we find that, in fact, these homemakers whose cases came up before the courts performed the full range of 
paid and unpaid work, you know, within the home and outside the home. And so the courts recognized that they, you know, they said that, it, and this is true for the men as well. So in fact, in the case of Keithi in 2021, although the husband who was also killed was a school teacher in Haryana, there were no pay stubs that they could find. But the court said, look, you know, unless there is some evidence to the contrary, we will have judicial recognition of their work. So in the case of women, for example, in one case, you know, this was a case from uh, Gujarat, you know, the Kutch, uh, you know, they were doing embroidery. And, you know, a lot of the women in the family were doing embroidery. Uh, and the woman who passed away was also doing that kind of work and earning some money. So the court said, okay, there's no proof of, you know, how much she earned through embroidery, but let's just see what the other women in the family are earning. You know, and we will just simply take that on board. And so this eventually benefited men as well. And interestingly, uh, you know, courts also uh, not necessarily in relation to homemakers, but in relation to other, you know, male workers also recognize the fact that there should be future prospects in any occupation, even if you're not in a permanent job. You know, even if you're self-employed, one should anticipate that over time, you would earn more. And the courts very nicely extended this reasoning to homemakers as well. So they said in the future, so because after all, you know, if there was a replacement worker, you know, uh, say a housekeeper, you would take into consideration future prospects for her earnings and increase it over time. So actually, even in the case of Kriti, the uh, Supreme Court Justice Ramana said that, you know, you have to recognize future prospects for homemakers as well. So you find this very kind of interesting role that the courts played in recognizing the reality of Indian workers. The insurance companies would often come to court and say, well, you know, there is no proof uh, of this person ever having had a job. You know, whether it's for a man or for a woman working in the informal economy, they simply could not show pay stubs. They could not show an employment contract. Um, you know, they could not show money coming into their bank account, for instance. You know, so the normal, what we all take for granted as workers in the formal economy was simply something that workers in the informal economy are not able to um, show proof of. So, you know, so this often would result in a penalty because, you know, courts would say, at least in the earlier set of cases, they would say, well, there's no proof that this woman was earning any income. So uh, we'll just have to discount it and not recognize that that work that she did, although the family would insist that she was bringing in some money, uh, however little, for the family. So this penalty was something that the courts put an end to by essentially taking notice of the fact that even if there's no employment contract, even if there are no pay stubs, unless there's evidence to the contrary, we will assume that they were in fact earning an income from the informal economy. So, so far we've talked about several of the methods that uh, that uh, courts have used to value women's unpaid domestic labor. So the replacement, uh, the replacement method, which would, you know, involve uh, replacing uh, the woman's role with uh, a, th- that of a worker. Um, the opportunity cost, which could look at how, uh, if the woman were to work in a paid employment, what the um, opportunity cost uh, would be and uh, a nominal sum which uh, uh, pejoratively has been fixed in in some cases as one third of the spouse's income um, so if we could look at what the fe- what a feminist recognition of care work and reproductive uh, labor would entail uh, you know how we could move towards that uh, direction i just want to start by saying that you know this you know what what is uh, uh, a feminist recognition and i think i just want to sort of quote here the, you know, what the Supreme Court said in 2021, you know, so if you want to look at what does feminist recognition of unpaid work look like, I think the Supreme Court has given us a beautiful answer. So Justice Ramana says that it signals, so here he's talking about fixing a notional income for the homemaker, and he says, 
quote, and I quote, it signals to society at large that the law and the courts of the land believe in the value of the labor, services, and sacrifices of homemakers. It is an acceptance of the idea that these activities contribute in a very real way to the economic condition of the family and the economy of the nation, regardless of the fact that it may have been traditionally excluded from economic analysis. And this is the most important part. It is a reflection of changing attitudes and mindsets and of our international law obligations. And most importantly, it is a step towards the constitutional vision of social equality and ensuring dignity of life to all individuals. So to me, this is a very powerful feminist recognition of women's unpaid work. Now, how do we use this? How do feminists want to use this very powerful support of, you know, the pioneering work that many feminists have done over decades. I think to begin with, certainly as a lawyer, I want to say that all proposals for reform, including feminist ones, have distributive consequences. Some are beneficial and some are not. So I think this is what the case law shows us. And I think we should always recognize this because all women are not the same. And that if you recognize the unpaid work of women in a certain way, there'll be certain categories of women who are always excluded. And there are always unintended consequences. So once we understand this, then, you know, we know that uh, we are trying to achieve the best results, but that we may not always be successful. So, for example, the Motor Vehicles Act was actually amended in 2019, where now uh, there is a lump sum uh, compensation of five lakhs, irrespective of who you are. You know, so obviously those who have been excluded, so poorer women, single women, older women, women without children are all going to benefit alongside men. But we have to understand that given this high level of compensation, it may result in higher insurance premiums, which are then spread across the population and that eventually there might be some poor redistributive outcomes. So I think a feminist recognition has to, uh, so we need to also understand that recognition has to go side by side with redistribution. And by thinking about redistribution, then we can value recognition better. So, for example, the single women or the single men who also perform reproductive labor but may not be compensated for it, it gives us an opportunity to then also recognize the value of care in society uh, on the whole. So I think this is very important. Now, in terms more concretely of how we can take this jurisprudence uh, and you know, transport it to other aspects of Indian law, I think uh, there's already been uh, a case for using this jurisprudence uh, to initiate reform in family law. So certainly by recognizing, you know, it, when women don't die, but they exit marriage, for instance, um, how should we compensate them for the unpaid work that they might have performed for decades, often having, having given up a job in, you know, the market in order to take care of the family and the children? So this is the most urgent side of reform, one that has been underlined by several judges, including Justice Prabhashri Devan in 2009, and now, uh, you know, confirmed by the Supreme Court in subsequent cases. I think there is also, as the courts have recognized, an urgent need to better measure and recognize the unpaid economic work that women perform within the household. There is a need to recognize the paid economic work that's performed within the household and to see, you know, how do we better protect the rights of home-based workers? And most importantly, I think for me, is to think about reproductive labor that's performed for the market and to make sure that we don't recognize the reproductive labor of women in an exceptionalist way. So let me just elaborate here a little bit. So we know that outside the household, 
you know, there are millions of women who are Anganwadi workers and Asha workers, and they perform reproductive labor for the state, essentially. Um, but they are viewed as volunteers. They're only paid an honorarium. Instead, they need to be recognized as workers. Similarly, we have, you know, egg donors, we have surrogates, and most recently laws have insisted that they not be compensated, that they perform such reproductive labor on an altruistic basis. I think this is not right. Similarly, I think there are paid domestic workers and the state has been completely indifferent to their demands for recognitionist workers. So they are performing reproductive labor on a daily basis for all of us and it's not being recognized. And then you have women like sex workers and dancers, for example, on whom the state simply wants to use the criminal law to prohibit certain forms of reproductive labor. So I think when we think about reproductive labor, we need to think about women performing reproductive labor in a variety of contexts and settings. And a truly feminist agenda would uh, you know, look at all these categories of women to see how best to recognize reproductive labor and also to think about the redistributive consequences and eventually have a broader conversation on reproductive labor that's also performed uh, by men. You know, I don't think we necessarily need to function only within this uh, binary of, uh, you know, men and women. I think we need to have a broader conversation on reproductive labor and care. And, and last year, during several elections, there was an interest in providing cash transfers to homemakers. And uh, Dr. Ashwini Deshpande in India Spen also argued that such schemes could deepen gender stereotypes and offer an excuse to restrict women to homes and also distort India's already low rate of uh, female labor force participation. What are your views on this? I think whether we like it or not, I think there is recognition without any feminist struggle on the part of political parties that women perform, you know, they may not articulate it in feminist terms, but I think there is some political recognition of the unpaid work that women are performing. Um, And there is, you know, an unconditional cash transfer to women to recognize this. And I think the question of what effects it has on decisions to perform paid employment or you know whether it has a negative consequence on you know choices to educate girls for example these are all questions that need to be empirically verified but i do think that the proposal to put money in the hands of women is only to be welcomed and i think feminists should take up the challenge of feeding into some of these uh, proposals as they are being implemented in the various states and trying to see, you know, what would make these cash transfers more empowering for women in a way that we don't entrench stereotypes, right? So I think feminists need to be a part of this conversation and empirically verify the consequences of some of these schemes rather than assume that, you know, it would necessarily lead to, you know, negative consequences. Right. And and what does the path forward look like when it comes to women's unpaid domestic work? I think uh, there are many, many opportunities for struggle here, uh, which we should, you know, actively, you know, embrace because the stakes are very high. You know, we are talking about anywhere between 160 to 300 million homemakers, you know, according to the census. And so I think the distributive consequences of these ways of recognizing women's unpaid work are immense and they could be immensely empowering and could actually shift the goalposts in terms of, you know, not only promoting women's paid employment, you know, I think I, in fact, don't think it, think of these cash transfers as being either or. I don't think that, you know, women will stop going out to work because of these cash transfers. If anything, I think they would likely want to go out more to work. So I think if we uh, suspend some of these assumptions and 
take advantage of these opportunities both in terms of the law and in terms of policy i think india could play a re- leading role you know in valuing women's unpaid work and it would set an example for the rest of the world so both uh, dr deshpande and dr kotishwaran are proponents of policies that would encourage sharing household work supporting women to engage in paid and safe employment and providing dependable childcare i suggest reading the full article by dr kotishwaran via the link in the show notes for more fascinating details epw has published several articles on unpaid domestic work and the informal sector and i've shared a few of them in the show notes i highly encourage reading them As always please share your feedback to us via any of EPW social media handles or email us at social@epw.in at Take care and thanks for tuning in